We have been investing in developing countries now for almost a decade. We've just approved another more than $750 million that the Green Climate Fund is currently investing. It's a very important tool. Uh, it is supporting critical action in developing countries. This is what's important. We have to put ourselves in the shoes of these people in developing countries. The theme of today's conversation is the biggest fund you maybe never have heard about, the Green Climate Fund. A lot of people don't know that this is actually the biggest multilateral climate investment fund in the world. And I speak to Mafalda Duarte, recently appointed executive director, about how to make the money of the fund make real progress and a real difference in the fight against climate change, both with regards to mitigation and adaptation. Welcome to Planet A, a podcast on climate change. My name is Dan Jørgensen. I'm Minister for Development Cooperation and Global Climate Policy in Denmark. In a series of conversations, I ask some of the world's leading experts, policymakers, authors and activists how to stem climate change. We, the human species, are confronting a planetary emergency. For more than 30 years, the science has been crystal clear. The reason I believe we need to act now is because the facts are staring us in the face. The time to answer humankind's greatest challenge is now. L'accord de Paris pour le climat est accepté. So this gives us the best possible shot to save the one planet we've got. There is no plan B because we do not have planet B. Welcome to Planet A. Today I'm honored to have Mafalda Duarte joining us. Mafalda is the Executive Director of the Green Climate Fund. Mafalda's journey in climate finance began in the academic field. She earned a master's degree in environmental economics and a PhD in climate policy, which equipped her with the knowledge and expertise needed to understand the complexities of the climate crisis. Hello, Mafalda, and welcome to my podcast. Minister, thank you very much. It's a pleasure for me to be with you. Well, I've been looking forward to talking to you for, for many reasons, but primarily because I've, I've found that a lot of people don't know the Green Climate Fund, which is a little bit strange since you are a very big fund, a very important fund, the biggest fund of its, of its sort. Uh, now, you're still pretty new in your mandate, uh, but you have some exciting uh, visions and are already uh, doing a great job. So, so I'm very happy that you are joining me here today. Could you maybe start by explaining to our listeners what is the Green Climate Fund? Absolutely. So the Green Climate Fund is actually the largest multilateral climate fund that we have. It's, uh, it's the primary uh, financial tool or mechanism of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. So what does this all mean for the broader audience? Uh, it means that, you know, when uh, different countries agreed that we needed more climate ambition and we needed more and we needed support, we needed to support developing countries, both joining the, the global efforts to mitigate greenhouse gas emissions, but also, you know, recognizing that they, they are disproportionately affected by the, impact, the impacts, they also needed support to be able to to adapt and become resilient, uh, they acknowledged that there was a need for a financial tool. And 
that financial tool was agreed by all countries. Uh, that primarily financial tool is the Green Climate Fund. So we have been investing in developing countries now for almost a decade. We have, with a recently approved project, so I'm, in a, I'm coming out of the board meetings of the Green Climate Fund this week here in Georgia, Tbilisi, from where I'm having this podcast with you, Minister. Uh, so we've just approved another more than $750 million for 15 projects, and that takes us to more than $14 billion that the Green Climate Fund is currently investing uh, in developing countries. More than, uh, it's around 130 countries that are benefiting from uh, Green Climate Fund resources. And with that, of course, uh, we are bringing other uh, financial institutions to invest alongside us, the multilateral development banks, the private sector, the governments and others. Um, so it's a very important tool. Uh, it is supporting critical action in developing countries. Yes, yeah, so it's it's a substantial fund. It, it helps uh, primarily the, the countries that are in dire need, both for climate transformation in the sense that they need help to invest in a transition to fight climate change, uh, the sources of climate change, but also to climate adaptation, right? Correct. So, so where does the money come from? Well, the money comes from countries like yours. Yes. It's <laughs> a bit of a leading question, I guess you could say. <laughs> and I thank you very much, uh, Minister, and your government for the leadership. We had a, a recent conference where the contributors came together in Bonn, uh, in Germany. So the, f the fund has what it's called the replenishment cycle. So every four years, uh, developed countries uh, pledge uh, to make financial contributions for the fund for a period of time. And so we are in that in the third round of, it's our third round of raising capital and resources from developed countries. Thank you to you and your government because you've doubled your contribution from, from last time. Uh, we had quite a number of countries that uh, increased their contributions as well. 75% uh, of, of uh, the, the 25 countries that have uh, contributed uh, increased their contributions. Um, we are at the moment at 9.3 billion. Um, there are still important countries that have not yet managed to confirm, go through their internal uh, processes, clearing processes to to be able to announce uh, their uh, pledges. But we are hopeful and confident that they will be able to do so uh, before COP28. Well, I wasn't actually fishing for a compliment, but I'll take it now that you now that you give it. It's important to, to tell our listeners, of course, that it is uh, national governments that uh, decide to pledge to, to the fund and uh, that that's what makes it possible to have this uh, very, very big uh, amount of money and what makes the fund the biggest multilateral uh, climate fund in, in the world. So in many ways, it's a huge success story. I would also say, though, and you're probably too polite to say it, Mafalda, but I would also say that I would hope that more countries would step up because even though the fund is big, it's it's far from as big as we could have hoped because the the need is there for more investments, which brings me to, to, to ask you uh, some questions about 
the state of the world, so to speak. How, how, how do you see right now the need for investments, both in mitigation and adaptation efforts? Yes, you are right. Um, we are far behind where we need to be, and uh, we just need to look at uh, the, the latest reports from the scientists, uh, from the financial institutions. Uh, we have massive gaps in terms of investments, uh, both on mitigation and adaptation. Um, uh, so, and, um, and one of the things that to me is very important is for, and, and this is also why I think this, having these podcasts and, you know, engaging with citizens as much as possible in this debate is actually quite critical because we need the citizens of the countries to understand that their governments need to make these investments. Uh, they need to be supported. In fact, the citizens need to ask their governments to do exactly this. And I come from Europe as well. So, you know, I, <laughs> I am from one of the European countries, um, you know, have lived um, many years in, in different countries, developing countries have come just out of living nine years in the United States. And I, I see this need of us citizens understanding that investing in developing countries is actually investing domestically, is investing uh, in Europe, is investing in the US, because in developing countries is where we will see two thirds of the trillions of dollars that are necessary in sustainable infrastructure in the coming years. Two thirds of 90 trillion uh, that, according to OECD, is necessary, is expected to take place in developing countries. So, as you and I know, Minister, if these investments, and these are investments in energy, in transport, uh, so in, in many sectors, uh, infrastructure sectors, if these, investor, if these investments lock us into a carbon-intensive world, there is no way we are going to meet the Paris goal. I, I totally agree, and uh, can, maybe you can share to the list, share with the listeners also um, some concrete examples of projects that you support. I think maybe that's useful to. I mean, this is not just giving money to a government and then they can do whatever they want. I mean, this is concrete strategy that you, as 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 the leader, sorry, as as the executive director of of a fund, is trying to implement with very clear goals, right? Correct. And and this is another important thing for, for people out there to understand. Uh, let's not lose hope or become a little bit uh, desperate with uh, some of the narrative out there that uh, because, you know, sometimes the sci scientific narrative is gloomy and, uh, you know, and I, I get worried when I see young people in particular say that they are very afraid for their future. And, and so I think we need more of a narrative out there that uh, really informs people that there are many investments happening and there are solutions. You know, of course, we need more investments uh, in new technologies and new solutions. But even as the International Energy Agency says, that investment in research and development of new technologies, that will help us in a couple of decades, not now. To act now is with the technologies we have now, and we have ample technologies to really make important investments. 
So I have seen, because I have been engaged in this type of work for, for uh, many years, we have been contributing funds like the Green Climate Fund uh, and other financiers. We have been contributing to this big shift that we are seeing in the energy sector. We are far from where we need to be. But when we look at the 2008, nine, where we were, 10, so in just slightly more than a decade, we have seen globally investments in renewable energy in countries where there hadn't been any. And, and now we see investments in, in, in solar. And, and of course, you know, uh, of course, the, it's not just solar. That's the other thing that people need to understand. It's, it's the several uh, technologies within renewable energy. So geothermal, it's wind, it's solar. It's a whole set of different technologies and investments. And, and, and uh, the funds like the Green Climate Fund and the poor financial resources we have, because they are public resources from developed countries, we have a degree of flexibility that really enables us to help take care of risks that others are not well-placed. Or, or to share risks with others and risks that they are really not well-placed to take on, in particular the private sector. So I have, seen, I have seen investments globally. I have seen solar investments in Morocco, solar and wind investments in Morocco, for example. I have seen geothermal investments in the Rift Valley in Africa, in Indonesia. I have seen solar parks in India. I have seen geothermal investments in Chile. These are all these are all investments, and these were first first round, second round, third round investments that we supported uh, in these countries that have never seen a renewable energy investment. I'm sometimes confronted with the argument that maybe we shouldn't focus so much on supporting renewable energy in, in developing countries since they're not really the biggest part of the problem. I mean, they're not the biggest emitters, which is true, especially the least developed countries don't contribute much with greenhouse gas emissions. I always answer to that question. First of all, many countries are growing, which we want them to, which is great. But that also then means, which is a paradox, that they they risk becoming a part of the problem that's now also threatening to undermine the development because climate change is a threat to development in most countries on the planet. And the ones that then manage to actually have uh, economic growth, grow their energy sector and so forth, if they then also succeed in making this a green growth, they risk becoming a part of the same uh, problem. So that's one point. Second point is, this is also about other things than than fighting climate change. This is also about creating development in countries where there's, for instance, a, a lack of access to electricity. So that's also a, a, an SDG goal, uh, which is uh, fantastic if we can also help remedy that situation in, in many countries whilst fighting uh, climate change. Yeah. So again, you know, Minister, I think that's a misperception because uh, actually uh, where we expect the highest demand in the highest growth in energy demand is developing countries. And uh, this is exactly coming back to my earlier point on the investment, the gap, the infrastructure gap uh, in terms of investments in the energy sector 
is in developing countries. So we are going to see massive investments uh, in the energy sector in developing countries. And if we don't support them to make the choice uh, and to support the private sector to invest and choose to invest in clean energy, then we have basically, um, we have we are putting ourselves in, in a very dangerous path. Um, and so, so we have to think um, countries, developing countries, so when we talk about developing countries, countries like South Africa, uh, India, Indonesia, um, and others, I'll tackle first the middle-income countries, and then I'll go to the to the low-income countries. But the, the middle-income countries, we know that we need to support these countries' transition away from coal. Coal is the single largest source of emissions we have globally. If we don't transition away from coal, help the countries move away from coal and actually rely on clean energy, again, we are not going to meet our goals. Um, so I think this is one important thing, and it's important for the listeners to understand that these countries are highly endowed with coal. Um, so they are not importing coal. They are actually, they have, you know, they have coal as, as endowments, their own natural resources. Some of them are even exporting it and also dependent on the income from the export. So it's not only their own energy sector that's based on coal, it's their whole economy, basically. So, so again, uh, but again, these countries are, you know, they can really benefit from investments in renewable energy. Solar in India, Prime Minister Modi has made large commitments and they are investing progressively. Uh, Indonesia has large, is one of the largest, the countries with the largest endowments of ge- geothermal resources. Yeah. South Africa is one of the countries that has the best, one of the best solar radiations in the world. Uh, they have also a lot of wind potential, so and 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 they have a huge demand, energy demand to meet. So that's one part of the story. The other part, when we come to low-income countries, I think uh, it's also important for people to understand. We have more than 700 million people without ac- access to electricity globally. Most of most of the people uh, are in Africa and in Asia. Um, Many of these people will not be able to necessarily get access to energy services through extending the grid, the national grid, uh, because they are in very remote areas. Um, I mean, I'm here in Georgia just to tell you, and as I was speaking to the government uh, uh, officials and asking them what is the the coverage of electricity, um, and they were saying, uh, they are quite high, uh, you know, reaching around 90%. The remaining is remote areas in mountain areas where they cannot really take the grid. And so to, to, to a lot of the people, uh, we will need renewable energy solutions that are off-grid solutions. So as you said, Minister, this is not just a matter of, this is a matter of, of development and of resilience. I mean, some of us that have lived, were born and lived all of our lives with energy and easy access to energy, we can't even imagine what it is not to live with energy. That's a very good point. Can I just, just give you give yeah. the listeners one example of that? Um, 
which is uh, cooking in in many developing countries across the planet, but especially in Africa. Um, a main source of uh, energy for cooking is a different source of biomass, primarily wood. So uh, often in a small village in an African country, the mother of the family and maybe some of the children, often the girls, will spend many hours a day gathering the the wood for that. So that's one thing. Even even worse effect of, of this is that it's very, very bad for the health of the people living in the small, very often very small uh, types of housing because of, of, of the particles from burning the wood. So they get uh, respiratory diseases and sometimes even die from this. Yeah. Uh, plus, of course, uh, it's not very practical. So, so for them, having electricity as, as an alternative would obviously uh, impose a huge uh, increase in, in, in their uh, well-being and their lives. Now, as you said, it's, it's not very easy to do this, though, because in many countries, having a national-wide electric grid that covers everybody it might happen in the distant future, but we are far from being there now. So what are, are then the sources if we want to provide these people with with energy? Uh, of course, some places they choose uh, generators, uh, and that's fossils, that's diesel often, but could also yeah. be other fossils. We don't want, hopefully, we, don't, we, can, we can avoid too many countries going down that route. Instead, very often renewables can be made uh, locally. So you can have a, a local grid in some instances, or if it's a solar panel, it could be uh, directly to one village or even one uh, house. So these are also very good reasons why investing in, in renewable energies in, in, in developing countries is a good idea. And in many cases, you can even argue that investing in, in, in renewables is both adaptation and mitigation. Mitigation, obviously, because we'll have less emissions than if we use fossil alternatives but also adaptation because it helps them create more resilient societies in a time where they are hit by climate change already. Yes, it's difficult to see really. I mean, it's difficult to see how we can say that any household or community can be resilient to climate if it doesn't have access to energy. Exactly. So it's very difficult to see. And, And as you said, the good news is that there are solutions, there are mini grid systems that combine that combine different renewable energy sources there are solutions that are you know just purely solar and and to be honest you know i think and you will hear you would hear many specialists out there said that because those solutions are available and they actually become more economical than diesel generators because this is the other thing for people to understand and you know me having worked many you know, many, many years in Africa and traveling extensively in the continent, I heard several people, you know, saying very clearly they are paying very high bills when they use the generators, the diesel generators. It's actually more expensive to them than an alternative, a solar, you know, a solar system would be for them. Even though sometimes it's actually subsidized. See, this is a paradox, right? So governments... Yes. Governments that are in, in need of, of resources spend some of their valuable resources subsidizing something that's polluting and that for the end consumer, even though it's subsidized, is still more expensive 
than had they chosen uh, renewable energy. And it's and and what you were saying, Minister, is also really really important. And I think we it's important to help people relate to this. If we have our children, our daughters, as you said, it tends to be girls. I mean, can we just imagine you and I? I have three daughters. I don't know if you have daughters or or sons or, <laughs> but I have three daughters, and you know the the thought of having them spend hours a day going and collecting wood for being able to for for me to be able to cook for the family instead of having my three daughters in school uh, and and I think it, this is what's important we have to put ourselves in the shoes of these people in developing countries we we would not want this for any of our kids I 100% agree and also I mean this is this is just one problem related to, to to cooking. I mean, there's so many other problems related to the issues that we're talking about uh, here, where we need to do more to help. So we all agree that we need to help provide better education for the young generation in in Africa, for instance, right? But I'm sure you've seen this also. I've I've definitely visited many uh, villages myself where. We've actually managed to get funding for facilities like a a a public school that's free for for kids with good facilities. But what happens often is that when, for instance, a drought hits, like I've seen in Ethiopia, uh, I've met people there where the school is there. But but what happens is because of the poverty that the drought has led to. Uh, the family cannot afford the luxury it is to send their kids to school. Correct. So they stay home instead. And that's a vicious circle, right? Because if they don't get the education, then how do you create a resilient society that can actually fight climate change and adapt to climate change? So it's important for people to understand that fighting climate change and adapting to climate change needs to be at the core of all development policies in, in most countries, and especially the ones that are hit the hardest right now, which leads me to ask you the question about uh, adaptation, because we've spoken mostly on mitigation Mm -hmm. now, and even though some projects are both mitigation and adaptation uh, uh, related, uh, can, can, can you share with us your strategy on how the fund helps countries adapt to some of the catastrophic uh, effects of climate change we see already now it's it's important to say that this is not something that might happen in the future this it will be worse in the future most likely unfortunately but it's already here now hurricanes droughts yeah. uh, we we see this yes um so i've had the privilege uh, even though i started in the green climate fund only august 1st um this year i've already had the privilege of visiting projects in three countries. Uh, I visited projects in uh, Kenya, Rwanda, uh, early September, and uh, yesterday we visited a project here in uh, Georgia. All of them adaptation, all of them resilience uh, projects. So the ones uh, in Kenya, um, this this was all about, uh, you know, helping, not, not the one here in Georgia, but the ones in Africa, was all about supporting the farmers. Small, small farmers, the vulnerable communities. Um, so in Kenya, what I, 
what I, I visited different types of, of uh, projects and, and different types of support being provided to farmers. And I want to say something important, which is our support is being given to uh, companies in these countries. So private sector companies in developing countries uh, that that uh, are reaching out to these farmers with uh, with solutions just that, such as solar powered systems, irrigation systems, um, biodigesters, uh, other, you know, regenerative agriculture practices, drip irrigation. So all of these solutions that are actually being provided by private sector companies in Kenya and uh, and, in the, and they also provide this, they invest in, in some other countries in Africa. Um, so they are helping the, the farmers. And I spoke with the farmers. I was there, spoke with the farmers. And the increase in yields and income is extraordinary. But it requires, it requires the resources. It requires resources, which is we provide in technical assistance to be able to provide assistance, technical assistance to the companies as well on how best they can serve uh, these farmers, these smallhold farmers. Um, and then subsidized, subsidized finance, of course, because we are talking about the, the, the poor communities, the vulnerable communities. Here, and so and then in, in Rwanda, um, it was again investments in smallhold, very vulnerable communities very vulnerable communities. I was there, I saw it myself. They would get their, all of their plantations wiped out with the rains and the landslides, completely wipe, wiping out their, their plantations, their, their agricultural lands. And so they would be left without the source of income and they would have to offer themselves to work for, for others. Um, and so helping them actually with, with new plantations on the slopes of the mountains, which actually helps both them having their source of livelihood, but preventing the future landslides uh, in the mountains uh, and a, a range of other services. So providing, you know, the farmers with an understanding of which best techniques to use um, in terms of their agriculture practices. And I spoke to to several of the farmers and, uh, and ladies uh, that are heads of households uh, and, and really saw the difference that these investments uh, have made in their lives and, and their children. Here in Georgia, we saw a different type of investment, um, which, is, which is also very important, early warning systems. I mean, believe it or not, some people might think, well, Georgia is in Europe, is in Eastern Europe. Um, but uh, the interesting thing is that the country hadn't yet invested in proper mapping of hazards or early warning systems, as an example. And uh, they really did not have a robust hydrometeorological system in place uh, of stations. A, a really significant gap, which everybody knows exists, for example, in Africa, because it's widely spoken about that... Uh, we rely in developed countries in Europe, in the U.S. and others on historical data that we have collected for decades, uh, weather data, which is really important and, and helping us make, be able to, to forecast and have uh, warning systems in place. 
Well, in Africa, there's a massive gap, but you know, here I, I, I was just visiting and again, these investments hadn't happened here. So we are helping uh, Georgia with, uh, with these investments. They have massive uh, floods happening. They have very large river banks because when uh, the snow melts in the spring, they, it's a very mountainous country, when the snow melts in the spring, they have massive water flows coming down, uh, which impacts significantly the farms and the, the livestock uh, as well. So actually making investments, what it's called gabions, to, so that when these massive water flows come down the mountains in spring, they actually don't destroy the farms. And unfortunately, this year, which was a shock to, to, the, to, the, to the population here of Georgia, they actually had unexpectedly uh, landslides that killed people. And this was a little bit of a wake-up call to the population here and, and brought a lot more understanding on the need for these type of investments. So, so just as an example, because, you know, uh, sometimes we might think, well, Europe, it's Eastern Europe, you know, uh, it's, uh, they are more advanced than other parts of the world. These type of uh, investments, for example, in early warning systems, early warning information systems, there's there's gap in many parts of the world, and this is these are one of the type of investments that are much necessary. But as we said, it's this, it's helping the farmers, it's what we said, it's addressing energy poverty, it's ad- addressing massive gaps in water supply uh, to the populations as well. So it's a whole range of investments uh, that are necessary to bring about resilience. Can I just add to, to, to that all of the things that you, you mentioned are extremely important. Um, I would say that the question about early warning systems is, is one that I would say uh, is, is, is probably even more important than many of the others because this is something that we could do something about quite quickly if we wanted to as an international community because these systems exist. They are not terribly expensive and we have best practices. So this is definitely also one of the things that I will bring to the table at the upcoming COP meeting where we will also be discussing how to implement the decision made in Glasgow at COP26 to double the the global financing in, in adaptation measures from paid for by, by different sources. Uh, I think it, it would be fantastic if we could agree that one of the main purposes one of the things that we need to do right now is having these early warning systems in place everywhere on the planet. Exactly. And we fully agree with that um, and actually um, have joined the call of the UN Secretary General and others, um, yourself and others, to make sure that the Green Climate Fund is investing significantly in this area in the next four years. So this is a, a commitment of ours. Mafalda, I would be remiss if I did not also mention that sometimes the F- Climate Fund has gotten some criticism. I, I have to say that quite often when when I visit developing countries and I speak to finance ministers and, and others in governments, they say, well, we, we, we like the Green, Green Climate Fund because they help us, but we have to say it's it's too bureaucratic, it's too difficult for us to get to the money, 
uh, and get to the investments. And very often I see where they're coming from because one of the reasons why they need funding and need help is because they maybe not are not in a situation where they have the capacity themselves. I'm sure you've heard this many times. Uh, I think probably some of the criticism is fair, some is not, because you also need to make sure that the money spent are spent well spent and there are rules, countries like my own, that provide the funding. We obviously also expect of you to, to have certain criteria that you fulfill so that we sure that the money actually goes to the right projects and people and all of that. But bottom line, we need the money to work faster and better for for the people that they are that they are meant for. What would you what would you say to that? Yes, now and uh, I have heard that a lot. And um, but by the way, this this uh, this point that developing countries make is a point that uh, not just touches on the green climate fund. So it's it's a broader issue uh, that touches actually the various institutions that are providing finance to developing countries. So I heard the same criticism about multilateral development banks and about some of the other funds. So I think it it really and and it doesn't make it better though. That <laughs> it just makes the no, problem worse. No, but it but but um, and I'm not uh, shying away from saying that uh, there's there's a lot to be done in GCF based on my own assessment, which I also just uh, you know shared with the board these these days. But the the first point that I'm trying to make is that as the shareholders or the owners and the you know people that are in the board of these institutions, it is important to have that broader conversation about you know what is it that is preventing resources from being accessed in a more simplified and tailored manner than is the case and this is the reason why i think that we see this movement from developing countries uh you know being bridgetown initiative being one of them but others of a, a really big call on let's talk about the international financial system and how do we equip the international financial system to be responsive to the needs of developing countries? So that, for example, when a small island state is hit by a major hurricane or another uh, hazard, that we can respond quickly and in a tailored manner to to what has just happened. So, so I, I just wanted to make that uh, broader point. So what I see in uh, in the Green Climate Fund, and I have shared, and I've shared my vision also at the UN Climate Ambition Summit early September. I want to first start with the really big positives. Uh, I see the fund as a quite unique tool that we have, and one that I have that I don't necessarily see in the architect in this broader landscape of financial instruments. Why? Because as we said, it's the scale. Mm. Uh, we have a significant scale of resources and scale of resources that are actually more flexible than what I have seen. Yeah. And the private sector is the one telling us, I was also early September in our global private investor conference in, in Kenya and spoke to several CEOs of small companies, larger companies that we are supporting. And they themselves saying that 
even though we are very bureaucratic and they would wish that we are, would be a, a little bit more responsive and simple, they themselves are saying there's nothing like that out there that actually responds to what we need, both in terms of uh, grant resources for, for advisory or technical assistance, but then the, 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 the capital itself being able to take, you know, certain types of risk. I mean, we come in as junior equity, we come in as junior debt, we come in, you know, provide guarantees. So so the, the power of this, and we have very large resources as well for project preparation facilities. So when we hear out there people saying, well, there is no bankable pipeline of projects. So, so the fact that we have this incredible project preparation facility, very well resourced that can actually tackle that uh, constraint um, is, is, a, is, a, is a big plus for the fund. I see a big plus the fact that we can actually work with a network of organizations, among which also the private sector, as I said, the ones in, that I've just visited in Kenya, that no other financial institution is actually supporting. And you also work with N- NGOs, right? Correct. Like Save the Children oh. and others uh, that that are able to to uh, also uh, help implement some of your projects and, and get money from you. So all of that network of organizations that we are partnering with, that is a network of organizations that have, that have actually not benefited from resources before, from climate finance resources. So all of that I see as extraordinary pluses and speak to the unique potential and role of the Green Climate Fund. But it is true that the processes, um, we need to look at the processes. Uh, And we cannot have a one-size-fits-all approach um, because the capacity of countries, again, just for the broader listeners to understand, so... I hear a lot from the small island developing states like the Pacific and the Caribbean. We are talking about islands whose population is 10,000, 20,000, 50,000. You know, I come from a very small town in uh, in Portugal. Uh, It it was 20,000 people (laughs) when I left. (laughs) And so... Uh, and so I think we need to put things in perspective. I mean, we need to think uh, these people and they, they talk about capacity, the, the, the fact that they don't have, you know, the capacity that other countries have to be able to meet all of the requirements and more requirements and more requirements. So we really need to be responsive, understand that it's not a one size fits all. Which again is a little bit uh, the the issue that uh, exists in the broader financial institutions. Is have we really looked carefully at our policies and procedures and processes and make them a little bit more tailor made? That you know, if we are talking about smaller investments and when we talk about environmental and social social safeguards, they are on the lower end of the scale in terms of risks. Have we, do we really have processes that are adequately simplified and responsive? And also, but then I also want to say that, and, and I, this I, I also discussed with the, the board, and uh, we need to look at our internal processes in the institutions. You know, are we making things a lot more complicated in terms of, of templates and reports and requirements and, and committees? that we might not necessarily need to. Uh, and therefore, you know, we can, we can save 
uh, costs and, and, and speed up access to the resources. That's my commitment at the Green Climate Fund is, is to really look carefully at what's the right balance, as you said, because it's not that, you know, we have to be judicious in terms of how we use the resources as well. But I think we are too much tilted towards one side at the moment. I totally agree, and I, I really appreciate your commitment in this. I think the, the Green, Green Climate Fund, with the reforms that you are putting in place now, can also be a frontrunner and be an institution that others look to for for inspiration. Because as you said, this is a general problem uh, in the international and investment community. Uh, so the, the reform process uh, of the uh, MDBs, uh, the World Bank being uh, probably the most important one, is uh, is hopefully also going in this direction. Definitely, I, I personally serve as Denmark's governor to the World Bank, and and it's been uh, my main argument in the process the, the 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 previous months that we need first of all to to be able to generate uh, more uh, investments. So that's not just more money in the bank. It's also making the bank able to generate private investments. We need to to make the bank able to be the risk taker, as you mentioned, the, the Green Climate Fund also is, meaning that what the bank actually does is it, 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 it makes it possible to make investments where the market cannot do it because there's risks and there will be risks in these types of, uh, of, of investments. And, and, and thirdly, we need it to be possible for the ones that need the money the most to actually access the money. And goes without saying that a small state, island state like you mentioned, that's not a ministry of climate and and energy with 50 lawyers that can full-time work on applications for uh, international organizations. It's just not there. So we, we, we need this to work in, in a different way. Mafalda, thank you so much for for this uh, excellent conversation and uh, keep up the good work. Uh, Denmark definitely supports you and will continue to. Thank you very much, Minister. Thank you. I appreciate You've listened to Planet A, a podcast on climate change and what to do about it.